This is Mary Elizabeth for the Bridge to Freedom podcast. This podcast is dedicated to letting you know that you are not crazy, you are not damaged, you are not broken, you are not alone, and above all, you are believed. I want to note that this podcast contains language that may be triggering for some audiences. This week on the Bridge to Freedom, we will be discussing suicidal ideology. This can be a component of complex post-traumatic stress disorder, otherwise known as CPTSD. I was working on another podcast when I was in a phone conversation with a colleague. She was sharing with me that due to the pandemic and the remain at home order that teen suicide was on the rise. My heart sank. Later in the same day, a friend was sharing with me that she was aware of 12 teens that had taken their own lives. My tears came and I thought back to my own sorrow and how I felt when Andrew had decided that suicide was a viable option for him at such a young age. I remember that internal frantic pain, that fear as a parent that you feel when you know you may not be able to save your own child's life. I decided today was the day that I would have this conversation. I am sharing my story about my son, Andrew. No, I am not a mental health professional, nor do I have training in suicide prevention. I can only share my experience as a parent. My son, Andrew, was turning seven years old, and he was learning to rejoin life, living in the present moment, versus dissociative behavior in which he flew away to an unknown place that allowed him to survive the trauma of being kidnapped, drugged, and sexually abused by a pedophile. As Andrew began his recovery journey, the most current goal at the time was for Andrew and I to return to our family home. Our family home was not a place where Andrew felt safe. His abuser knew where he lived and he had threatened to cause harm to our family. The psychiatrist treating Andrew had prescribed an FDA-approved medication to support Andrew in his process of reintegrating back into our home. The plan was in motion for Andrew to return home. We had had an alarm system installed in hopes that it would provide Andrew with the much-needed safety he required to heal. I had put every safety plan into action that I could think of, and I was hoping that Andrew could return home to a safe place. And soon... I realized it wasn't enough. One day I heard my daughter screaming from upstairs. It's one of those blood-curdling screams when as a mother, you know something is drastically wrong. I went running towards the screams and all I could hear is, Mom, Andrew's on the roof and he's going to jump. My world became small. My breathing was fast. I ran back down the stairs, out the front door. I looked up at Andrew and I looked down at the cement And I looked back up at Andrew, and something came over me. And in the calmest voice, I said, Andrew, what's going on? Why are you on the roof? Andrew stated he was going to jump. There was no other explanation needed. I again looked up at Andrew, and I looked down at the cement. And I said, you know, Andrew, from my calculations, I don't really think jumping off that roof will kill you. I really feel like it's just going to hurt you. Fear was racing through my head. I could feel nothing. I could not tell you to this day what I was wearing, 
whether or not it was hot or cold outside, if I had shoes on my feet or not. My focus was on nothing but saving Andrew. I made eye contact with Andrew, and I said, Andrew, why don't you come down off that roof so you and I together can think of a better way to kill you? I could not believe I had just suggested to my son that he should come off the roof so that we could figure out a better way to kill him. I had no idea where that came from. It just came out of my mouth. By now, my teenage daughter was climbing out on the roof and encouraged Andrew back to safety. Once Andrew was safely back in the house, I called the psychiatrist. The psychiatrist told me that the new medication he placed Andrew on gave him what he called suicidal ideology. I was feeling like I was emotionally losing it. I asked the psychiatrist where should I take Andrew to get him some help. The psychiatrist told me to take him off the medication immediately. Now get this, there was not an option other than our family supporting Andrew through clinical withdrawals of this medication. We took shifts for the next eight days in our home to make sure that Andrew was safe. There were no pediatric psychiatric beds available in our community to support our family. But I have learned 81% of the people who attempt suicide tell someone what they're going to do and when they're going to do it. That number was staggering to me. 81% of the time, we as loved ones would know what they are thinking, what they are planning, and what they are feeling. Yet we stay silent. Our fears do not excuse our silence. We must do better. We must choose to get help versus walking away. The single most important act is to never take warning signs lightly. To never promise to keep a secret if someone shares they want to kill themselves. The next is asking for help. Help was not a part of my vocabulary when our family started their healing journey. I thought I had to be super mom. I thought I had to have it all together. I thought I had to carry all of the burden, all of the struggles. My difficulty in asking for help lied in the fact that I too, I too, had to come to terms with my own trauma. This meant I was healing as Andrew was healing. I was the adult. I knew I had to expedite my learning curve. I had to stand in the face of no agreement. I had to stand in my own personal pain, my own feelings of inadequacy my own inability to self-love, my own story to myself that I was not enough, my own lack of experience with healthy boundaries, my own need to believe I was not going crazy, my own need to understand that I was not worthless. I really was searching for peace and truth. I had to get real. And I had to get honest. I had to let down the walls around my deep, sorrowful pain. I had to ask for help. And asking for help, my experience was that people came out of the woodwork to support me. My experience was extraordinary. People I didn't even know offered and gave unwavering support to my family. And I was no longer living in my own private, 
silent hell. I have learned we must choose transparency in the way we live our life. It is living our life by example that will allow others to feel safe and asking for help. Here is how to break the stigma and to let others know they are not alone. We must lower our own mask. We need to start having honest conversations. We need to know that demonstrating vulnerability is okay. It means not pretending we're having a good day when in fact we're having a shitty day. It begins with telling the truth about our feelings and our emotions. It means we do not act like we have it all together when in fact we don't have it together. It means we demonstrate it's okay not to have it all together. It means we give people the room and grace to make mistakes and in experiencing the making of mistakes, they learn that mistakes do not make them a mistake. Brene Brown says, Love and belonging are irreducible needs of all men, women, and children. We're hardwired for connection. It's what gives purpose and meaning to our lives. The absence of love, belonging, and connection always leads to suffering. I propose today, let's create connection and tune in to those we love. These are unprecedented times. The pandemic will cause distress and leave many people vulnerable to mental health problems and suicidal behavior. As adults, friends, and family members, if we are all committed to making suicide prevention a top priority and are empowered to take the correct actions, we can help others before they engage in behavior with irreversible consequences. This is what the National Association of School Psychologists recommends. If someone you know or love has expressed suicidal ideology, take them seriously. Remain calm. Ask the person directly if he or she is thinking about suicide. I know there's always a fear that asking someone about suicide is going to put that idea in their head but this is not true. Focus on your concerns for their well-being and avoid being accusatory. Listen to them, truly listen to them. I know it sounds simple, but the results of listening to someone may save their life. Reassure them that there is help on the way and that they truly will not feel like this forever. Do not judge, be supportive, tune in. Provide constant supervision. Do not leave them alone. Remove means for self-harm. Call for help immediately. Get support. Do not do this alone. First responders and experts can and will provide intervention. If you are right now listening to this podcast and you feel like you want to end your own life, please go pick up the phone, dial 911 and ask for help. There is also a crisis text line for those who need support. You will be connected to a crisis counselor who will listen to you without judgment. 
you text the word HOME, H-O-M-E, on your phone to 741-741. If you know someone who is suicidal, get help immediately by calling 911. Or you can call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at one 800 273 talk Again, that number is one 800 273 talk This lifeline will connect you to a trained counselor in your area. If you or your loved one is a veteran, dial one 800 273 talk and press the number one, which will connect you with the Veterans Crisis Line. Please share your emotional pain with someone. Your life means everything to someone. We love you. I love you. Let others support you loving you. This is Mary Elizabeth for the Bridge to Freedom podcast. And this podcast is dedicated to letting you know that you are not crazy, that you are not damaged, that you are not broken, that you are not alone, and above all, you are believed. I want to end with saying here's a hug and a kiss and I love you. Please take the time today to love yourself. Take that extra step to reach out to those you love and let them know.